Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Please continue to give your attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, Will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from that day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. I would imagine for most of us that our day-to-day routine, our day-to-day lives are fairly routine. We do the same thing pretty much every morning, right? You get up, you do your thing, and then you go to bed and you rinse and repeat. Now, maybe every now and then, we do something to break the routine. But for the most part, it's like the old Jackson Brown song, The Pretender. And the line from that song, The Pretender, goes like this. I'm going to rent my sow myself a house in the shade of the freeway gonna pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day and when the evening rolls around i'll go home and lay my body down and when the morning light comes streaming in i'll get up and do it again that's what our lives are pretty much like but i believe that for each of us there are what are called maybe turning point days days where we look back on and say to ourselves that was the day that changed my life Could be the day, men, could be the day where you met that lovely woman sitting next to you. Or women, it could be the day you met that studly man sitting next to you. Could be the day that your first child was born. Or it could be a day that was marked with tragedy. Whatever the case may be, in the 28,835 days that make up the average human lifespan, yes, I did the math, You may never know which one of them might be a turning point day. 
As we come now to the close of the book of Haggai, let's look back a little bit and recall what we have learned so far. The book starts in chapter 1 on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king, which can be reckoned to August 29th, 520 B.C. It was a day in which the remnant had returned from exile in Babylon and had been in the land for 18 years, but hadn't made much progress on rebuilding or restoring the temple, the house of the Lord. So the Lord sends Haggai the prophet to shake them out of their self-absorbed stupor and to get them back on the path of covenant faithfulness. And in chapter 2, we see on the 21st day of the seventh month, which can be reckoned to October 17th, 520 B.C., a month after the the people renew their priorities on rebuilding the temple, the Lord again sends a word by the prophet Haggai to encourage the people in what they're doing. They had become discouraged because the former glory of the temple uh, had surpassed the glory of the temple that they were rebuilding. They were sort of longing for the glory days of old. And God encourages them to press on, to persevere as he promises that the latter glory of the temple will far surpass the glory of the former temple. Now as we come to the end of Haggai's prophecy, we're going to see here that the 24th day of the ninth month, which can be reckoned to December 18th, 520 B.C., would be one of those turning point days in the history of God's people. In these last two oracles of Haggai, we're going to see two things. We're going to see cursing turn to blessing. And we're going to see the restoration of the kingdom and kingship to the people of God. So the big idea for this morning, the main point I want to get across this morning in this message is that the kingdom of God promises present blessing and future glory. The kingdom of God promises present blessing and in future glory. And this section of Haggai will break down to three points. You're going to see in verses 10 through 14, past reflection as God brings to the mind of the people what has happened to this point so far. And then in verses 15 through 19, you're going to get sort of a looking back and a looking forward as God says, look what happened before. Now look at what's going to happen going this day forward. And then in verses 20 through 23, we're going to get a glimpse of future glory. So let's start first with past reflection in verses 10 through 14. Again, as with all of Haggai's oracles, the fourth oracle here in chapter 2, verse 10, begins with that same day, month, year formula as the other three oracles. You get the 24th day, the ninth month, and the second year of Darius the king. As we mentioned earlier, this day would mark a turning point day for the people of God. Now, why is that? Well, to, to kind of explain this, you need to sort of sneak down a little bit to verse 15, where the prophet says here, and now carefully consider from this day forward, before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. And then look down again at verse 18. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. This day is a turning point day because this day is foundation day. It is foundation day. This day marked the day that the foundation of the temple had been completed. This was the task for which the people were sent 
back to Jerusalem out of exile to do? To restore the temple of the Lord. It had been what they had been working for for 18 years. Now finally, the foundation of the temple had been laid. And it was a day of great celebration. We learn of this in Ezra chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. However, it was also a day in which the Lord wanted his people to reflect on their past and what brought them up to this point. Now, maybe as you heard me read through verses 11 through 14, you are probably wondering what in the world is going on here. This talk about clean and unclean and if I'm hiding food in my pocket or whatever, what's going on here? Well, the Lord directs Haggai to ask the priests. The priests were the people who are experts on the details of the law. He orders Haggai to ask the priests two hypothetical questions regarding the transmission of holiness and uncleanness. That's the idea behind what the Lord is asking here. He says, basically, it is this. The idea is this. The relative power of the holy and the profane to impact what they touched. Okay, this is the idea to get across when you read these. Please look again at verses 12 and 13. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? In other words, if I've got something that's holy... And if I touch something that's not holy, does it become holy by contact? And the priests say, no, it doesn't. Then he says, okay, how about if one who is unclean because he has touched a dead body touches any of these things? Will it be unclean? So in other words, if a person, according to Jewish law, if they touched any dead body, they became ceremonially, ritually unclean. And then anything they touched would also become unclean. So the question is asked, will it become unclean? The priest says, yes, it will. It will certainly become unclean. The point to take away from these verses is this. Uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. This is seen in that while you can't transfer holiness from one thing to the next, uncleanness can be communicated by touch from one object to the next and so on. Now, while these questions have much more relevance to the context of temple worship and ritual cleanness, the deeper purpose of these questions is to look at the spiritual condition of the people themselves. And the payoff of these hypothetical questions then becomes apparent in verse 14 when we read, Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, the people are unclean. Their works are unclean. Their offerings are unclean. And because the people are unclean, everything they touch, everything they do, becomes unclean. Uncleanness is contagious. 
It's as if all the people are infected with the spiritual equivalent of the coronavirus. And there's no amount of spiritual purell that you can put on your hands that will solve the problem of the people's uncleanness before the Lord. And furthermore, because the people are defiled, the temple, the very temple in which they are working on, is also defiled. The works of their hands are unclean. The temple, being the place where contamination due to sin was to be removed, was itself contaminated by coming into contact with a contaminated people. Now, this seems to be a very hopeless situation for the people. It seems every so often the people of God need to be reminded of their hopeless state before a holy and righteous God. The holiness of God is so awesome to behold that a mere glimpse of it by the prophet Isaiah was enough for Isaiah himself to pronounce a curse upon himself. That's what he says in Isaiah 6. He catches a glimpse of the glory of the Lord in his temple, seated high and exalted on his throne. And what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me. For I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The holiness of God is reflected in the Ark of the Covenant, his little throne room, the representation of God's throne, was enough to kill Uzzah. If you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, they are moving the Ark from where it was in Shiloh to Jerusalem, and they put it on a cart, which was wrong. They weren't supposed to put it on a cart. And the cart hits a, a rock, and, and the The ark is about to fall off, and Uzzah goes to reach out to save the ark and touches it, and he is struck dead on the spot because the holiness of God is so awesome, and it was so uh, unholy for Uzzah to touch the ark as he had done. The point is this. No amount of religious ritual, no amount of good works can save us or make us holy because we are fundamentally defiled by sin. So what makes us holy, and by extension our works clean, what makes them holy and acceptable to the Lord is the fact that God condescends to accept our feeble efforts in Christ. The temple where God's glory dwells and where the sins of the people were atoned for, and which also the temple points to the greater temple, Jesus Christ, is what made them and their efforts holy. And likewise for us, we can then look back at the finished work of Christ. The fact that by grace through faith we are justified in Christ is what makes us acceptable to a holy and righteous God. And then our works of obedience then are not meritorious attempts to earn favor or justification with God, but they are grateful sacrifices of thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ. So anytime we start thinking that our good works somehow earn us anything from God, we need to think again. We need to recalibrate our thinking. Because our best works are tainted with sin and selfishness. Yet God is pleased to accept them, even those works, in Christ because of Jesus Christ. So now as we move to verses 15 through 19, we're going to see a sort of a retrospect and a prospect, or a looking forward and a looking backward. After giving the people a reminder by way of these hypothetical questions to the priests to get the people thinking about their true status before the Lord, Haggai wants now to sort of give the people a look back on their situation and a look forward. 
And in verses 15 and 18, we see that same language, that word consider. This is the same word we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, and in chapter 1, verse 7, when Haggai, the prophet, said to the people, consider your ways. Here in verse 15, though, he says, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple. In other words, let's take a look at back before you started work on the foundation of the Lord. How did, it, how did you fare? How did you fare before you started work on the temple? That's what he says in verse 16. This is a rhetorical question because the people knew very well how they fared. If you remember when we looked at chapter 1 of Haggai a few weeks back, and, and while uh, the house of the Lord lays in ruins, the people sowed much, but they harvested little. They ate, but they never had enough. They drank, but they never had their fill. They, they clothed themselves, but they were never warm. And they worked only to put their wages into a bag with holes. Here we see a similar situation in verse 16, where we see they came to a heap of 20, but only found 10. They came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, but only drew 20. A reminder of the fruitless labor and unsatisfying work that they experienced as a result of the temple that lay in ruins. Then in verse 17, we see a reminder of the curse that God brought upon the land back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It said that the Lord had struck the people with blight, with mildew, with hail. In other words, they had agricultural defilement, agricultural disaster. Now, we're all farmers. Well, I'm not a farmer, but most of you all are farmers here, right? And I've heard stories it's like, you know, you want the rain, you love the rain, but you hate the hail, right? When the hail comes, particularly early on in the planting season, your, your corn stalks are not strong enough and the hail comes and, and it kind of obliterates your, your crop. It's kind of what was going on here. Yet even then, because of all of this, the people still did not turn back to the Lord. So frustrating labor, agricultural ruin did not people bring the people back to the Lord. It took a gracious act of God uh, in sending his prophet Haggai to shake them from their complacency. In other words, the people were too hard-hearted. They were too stubborn. They didn't connect the dots between their fruitless labor and their agricultural ruin and the frustration that the Lord was feeling because of the temple which lay in ruins before them. That's the look back. Now in verses 18 through 19, the Lord gives the people sort of a prospect. This is what to look forward to now. Where he says again, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Let's look at things now that the foundation of the temple has been laid. We said this is a turning point day, and we're going to see why here now. Look again at verse 19, where he says, Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but... From this day, I will bless you. This question here, is the seed in the barn, points to the fact that given the time of year, again, we said this is December 20th, 520 BC, the seeds are not in the barn. They have been planted for next year's crop. So the seed is not in the barn, it's in the ground. But we also know that given what has happened so far in the book of Haggai, 
that last year's harvest was very disappointing. Again, remember what we learned about in chapter 1, verse 6. They sowed much, they harvested little. They had a very disappointing harvest last year. This is evidence when the prophet says, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But despite this, Haggai tells the people that the Lord will bless you. The Lord will bless you. Because the people have turned to the Lord and have renewed their efforts at rebuilding the house of the Lord, the Lord responds by blessing his people. Now, if you recall in the previous two sermons in Haggai, we had these words of gospel comfort that the the prophet gives to the people to encourage them in in their labors. In chapter 1, we saw that the Lord said, I am with you. I am with you. Build the house of the Lord. I am with you. And then again in chapter 2, early on when they were discouraged, the Lord again said, I am with you. And now here in chapter 2, later on in chapter 2, we have again more words of gospel comfort where the Lord says, I will bless you. You had a bad harvest last year and you don't know what's going on for the future, but I'm going to bless you. Why? Because you renewed your covenant faithfulness by rebuilding the temple. The Lord is going to turn curse into blessing. And to show that it's not based on the people's merit, notice that the Lord blesses the people before the temple is fully complete. As we've been saying throughout this series, the temple is symbolic of the presence of God amongst his covenant people. And related to that, then, that the state of the temple... The state of the temple is also symbolic of the state of that covenant relationship with the Lord. In other words, a temple that lays in ruins is symbolic of a relationship with God that was also in ruins. But however, on foundation day, this day, the foundation of a renewed covenant relationship between the Lord and his people has been laid. And from this day onward, the Lord says, I will bless you. On foundation day is the day of blessing. Now, every now and then, Christians need to look back and need to look forward. We need to look back for each Christian, our turning point day. Our turning point day was a day that we professed faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Whatever, whether that was as an adult, whether it was as a child, it doesn't matter. Every day, every person has a foundation day in their own life, a turning point day in which they came from darkness into light. Before that day, we experienced fruitless labor or even under a curse. But after that day, the Lord blesses us in Christ. We have been delivered, as Paul says, from the domain of darkness and transformed into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is by this looking back and looking forward exercise that we can recalibrate ourselves and we can get our priorities realigned from building our own houses to building the kingdom of God. However, we need to keep in mind that the holiness that enables us to stand before God as accepted is not received through contact. That's what we were talking about earlier. doesn't matter. You cannot be holy by contact with the church. You cannot be holy by contact with Christianity. Holiness cannot be communicated through contact. No amount of outward religious activity or service can make one holy. It is only through our mystical union with Jesus Christ, brought about by a Holy Spirit-wrought faith, that makes us acceptable 
to God. We are acceptable in Christ. So now we've seen that the restoration of the temple was symbolic of the restoration of the covenant relationship between God and his people. But now Haggai has more to tell us about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom in verses 20 through 23 as we look at future glory. Future glory. Verse 20 here begins the same way as the others do uh, in verse 10 with the same mention of the 24th day of the ninth month. Again, it's the same day. So Haggai has two oracles in the same day. It's foundation day. And he comes to the people with another message, but this time it's for Zerubbabel, the governor, as we read in verses 20 through 22, where the prophet says, And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. The message that Haggai was to take directly to Zerubbabel is one of cataclysmic overthrow. We've seen this language before, the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Uh, It's similar to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 6, two weeks ago. But whereas in verse 6, the shaking was to bring the wealth of the nations into the temple to fill this house with glory. Here in verse 22, the shaking is for the purpose of conquest. God says, I am about to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I am about to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders. And everyone shall go down by the sword of his brother. Now, all these predictions through the mouth of the prophet Haggai call to the mind of God's people the sovereign acts of judgment on the nations throughout redemptive history. This language of overthrowing the thrones of kingdom is the same that was used when God overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19.25. The overthrowing of chariots and riders is reminiscent of how God overthrew the armies of Pharaoh during the Exodus, drowning them all in the Red Sea. And everyone dying by the sword of his brother recalls how God defeated the Midianite army in the days of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. God has in the past brought judgment on the wicked nations and delivered his people. And now through the, through the prophet Haggai, this promised his rule, he is about to do so again. This shaking of the heavens and the earth is sort of like a reversal of his work of creation. If you ever remember having an Etch-A-Sketch as a child, you drew a picture and you wanted to shake it to start it over again so you can draw a new picture. It's kind of what's going on here. God is shaking the heavens and the earth like a reversal of his work of creation. But instead of bringing disorder, God is going to restore things to their proper order. The Lord is about to shake heaven and earth to overthrow the kingdoms of evil and wickedness so that he can reestablish David's throne and kingdom. And though this message is coming by the prophet Haggai, by the hand of Haggai on foundation day, It is a message that is pointing forward to a future day where he says on that day. This is, to use a fancy word, eschatological language. It is end times language. 
It typically calls to mind prophecies regarding the day of the Lord, that day when the Lord returns in judgment to bring final vindication and to establish his eternal kingdom. And here Haggai tells Zerubbabel, on that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, again, what's going on here? What's this talk about a signet ring and all this stuff? Well, the key to this verse, of course, is this notion of the signet ring. A signet ring was a sign of royal authority. It was used mainly by kings to sort of, you know, they would put their seal on official documents of the kingdom. And a signet ring could be passed on to a royal representative as sort of an extension of royal authority. It carried the authority of the sovereign. If they had the ring... They were sort of speaking in the authority of the king. And this is essentially how the Israelite kings functioned. They were God's signet rings. They were God's royal representatives on earth. All of these kings then, of course, foreshadow Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now we have to get back into a little bit of biblical history here to understand what's going on. Because when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 597 B.C., there was a king at the time, his name was Jehoiachin. You can read about him in 2 Kings 24-25. This Jehoiachin would have been Zerubbabel's grandfather, and he was a very wicked king. Now, in the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 22, we read this, where we see, As I live, declares the Lord, though uh, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. This is Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 25. So Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was the Lord's signet ring. But because of his evil ways... God rejected him as king, and it says, I will take you off, I will remove you as a signet ring from my hand. And then later on in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, we read, Write this man down, that's Jehoiachin, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in the days, in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. In other words, Jehoiachin was so evil that God basically said, enough, we're going to cut off the kings of Judah here at this point. We're going to cut off the line of David at this point. We're going to remove you from the signet ring from my right hand. This would indicate that the Davidic line had been ended, had been abandoned due to the wickedness of her later kings. But we know that the promises of God are always yes and amen in Christ, right? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. God promised to David that he would raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. So what's going on here is that in making Zerubbabel his signet ring, the Lord is promising the continuation of David's royal line through Zerubbabel, the Davidic royal line that was broken because of Jehoiachin's wickedness, is graciously restored to Zerubbabel on Foundation Day. 
Now we know that Zerubbabel never assumed the throne. He was never king. He was only a governor. And though he was Jehovah's or Yahweh's servant, he was Yahweh's chosen one, it will be a promise that is fulfilled not on this day, foundation day, but on that day, the day that will come. God promised from this day on, I will bless you. And, we, and this will see ultimate fulfillment in the final days when Jesus, the greater David, the greater Zerubbabel, will rule and reign forever. By virtue of his resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ is already king and he is already reigning in heaven. But when he returns on that day, that later day, then the whole world will see and acknowledge him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Where Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King to the glory of God the Father. As one writer put it, the oracle declares that, uh, this oracle declares that God will restore a king from the line of David. He will overthrow the kingdoms and thrones of the nations to reestablish his kingdom and put his king on the throne above all nations. And that king is Jesus Christ, descended from the line of Zerubbabel and from the line of David. As we wrap things up here, turning point days. What a difference a day can make. And December 18, 520 B.C. was the day that the temple foundation was laid and the day that the Lord of hosts promised not only to bring present blessing, but also future glory to come. This day marked a turning point for the people of God. Their uncleanness was made clean. Their cursing was turned into blessing. And their rejected king would one day be restored. Foundation day also meant for them the eventual restoration of the full temple, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. This would be a day, like others before, that the people of God could look back on and recall God's goodness and blessings and look forward to greater future yet to come. But what does Foundation Day mean for us? As we've been saying all throughout the book of Haggai, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the, uh, he is the true Emmanuel. He is the true God with us in our presence. Jesus Christ is the foundation of a holy temple in the Lord. That's what we read about in Ephesians 2.20. He is the cornerstone of that foundation. And foundation day for us is in December 18th, 520 B.C., but that Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that is the true foundation day. Because that was the day that sin and death were conquered and death lost its sting. That was the day when the foundation for a holy temple in the Lord was laid. And that is the day we celebrate each and every Lord's Day, proclaiming his death and resurrection until he returns. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then I urge you to repent and believe the gospel today while it is still called today. Because all the blessings God promised uh, in his, by, his, by, by God's word in Haggai and all throughout Scripture only belong to those who have repented of their sin and have placed their faith and trust in Christ as our only hope for salvation. And we say repent and believe while it's still, while it's still called today 
because there will come another day, a day in which the Lord will return. And that day will not be a day of salvation. It will be a day of judgment. But until then, the free offer of the gospel uh, still awaits any and all who repent and believe. I close with these words. The final oracles of Haggai 2 remind us that our foundation day, what Christ has already done for us, has achieved for us God's favor and blessing in the here and now and guaranteeing for us an unshakable kingdom in the future. We should cling tightly to the hope that is already ours, built upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.